This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, April 17th. And now, please rise for the singing of our Episode 89 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. This is a weekly baseball podcast. Paul and I are twin brothers that live in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, Paul, how's it going? It is going well. I assume you're going to tell the listeners about the beverage I provided you pre-podcast. I was not planning on it. Would you like to share? This podcast is brought to you by Paul's uh, iced coffee uh, brew. Uh, it's probably my biggest passion outside of baseball. I've, I think I've made seven different uh, cold brews this past week, and I provided some to Peter for the first time today. Yeah, it was uh, it was decent coffee. Uh, what's one interesting thing that happened to you this past week? My my wife accidentally locked uh, herself out of the house with two kids inside the house. That was something crazy. How'd she get back in? Uh, I had to wait for a friend to drop a key off. How long was the wait? Uh, twenty five minutes. Wow, she freaking out. Yeah, mostly because she didn't have her phone, and she was in her pajamas. Could she see both children? She could see our uh, one-and-a-half-year-old. He thought it was sort of a game. He was, like, smiling out the window. Hmm. Yeah. Benson. Benson, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I guess the lesson learned is those, like, fake rock things actually are, they can help you. Well, she if something bad was happening, she would have, like, broken a window. She tried she tried to. She break broke the screen of one window. But yeah, I guess she would have shattered it. Hmm. How about you? We, you're, we haven't talked Kansas City. Yeah, uh, my friend Matt and I. Uh, last week's podcast. Mm-hmm. I feel like we talked about it because of that. Uh, yeah, so I got back Sunday night. Uh, so I guess that was interesting. Would you say that the you had a lot of Kansas City barbecue, right? That's correct. Would you say that the Kansas City barbecue was like the best? local food you've had a couple other examples would be chicago style pizza hmm. italian food on the hill it's an interesting question i don't know what boston you just, seafood what you just said with a second one there uh yeah i mean I, that's hard to tell like it's hard to compare pizza to barbecue i would say it's definitely the best barbecue i've ever had the sauce there of all the places was very sweet hmm. and i feel like a lot of barbecue places like in champagne we have good barbecue places but the sauces are all kind of like gimmicky or exciting, like Georgia peach or tangy or, you know, those sorts of things. This was just like straight sweet barbecue sauce, like a, a better version of Sweet Baby Ray's. Did they give you a choice? Uh, there was always kind of like a signature or original that I went with, but I'm sure we I could have asked for something different. Do you have a recommendation for the listeners? Like a place to go to? Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe's Barbecue Kansas City or Kansas City Joe's, if you just Google that. That's the most famous place, and I thought that was the best uh, best one. All right, well, that does it for our life uh, updates. Um, check out episode 88 of the podcast if you're interested more in that. Yeah, great. Uh, I think my favorite part was interviewing the Royals fans. Yeah, that was our first, uh, our first time interviewing random folks on the street. My first time. Your first time. You, you have yet to do that. All right, well, uh, episode 89 intro here. Um, Going to recap the first couple weeks of the season, some things that Paul and I have been intrigued by, um, recap another Seinfeld episode, and then uh, later on we're going to talk about Michael Jordan's baseball career, which is uh, uh, I enjoyed looking into. Yeah, it's fascinating. What, uh, what are we looking at with TWTW this week? We will be answering a listener question. Matt in Minnesota uh, sent us a question about um, whether the game after an offensive outburst is uh, normally lower than average. It's kind of a common thought, right? The thought being that your offensive output on one day would be impacted by the game before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sounds of the game, um, we're going to look at a Colorado Rockies moment because they're doing pretty well to start the season. And then we're going to end the podcast uh, with an interview with a uh, Denver Post writer is keeping the Rockies train going. He wrote a story about a beer vendor at Coors Field 
that kind of made the rounds on uh, social media this week, and so we talked to him about that article, a very touching uh, tribute to that vendor. So stick around for that. To get the podcast going, though, our Nelly update. Uh, thanks to him for our intro song. Uh, Nelly has added another tour, lo- tour location close to us, Paul. Uh, organizers of the Decatur celebration announced this past week that Nelly is performing at the festival. Uh, it's August 4th through the 6th. Decatur is like an hour away from here mm-hmm. or so. Uh, and he's already performing in Peoria on May 20th, which is like an hour and a half away from here. The The article quoted uh, a resident of Decatur, Brandy Bennett. She had already purchased tickets to the Nelly show in Peoria uh, and said, uh, quote, I'll still go to the one in Peoria because I'm going with friends, but I'll probably go see him in Decatur too. Hmm. Dynamite quote there. I'm I'm curious to know how the uh, author of that article found just a random Decatur citizen <laughs> that's going to both shows. All right. Uh, well, that August show uh, will be right around our hundredth episode. I think uh, I think you should go. <laughs> a live show. I'll pay for you to go. Yeah. No thanks. All right. Uh, well, we'll keep uh, keep you updated on uh, on Nelly touring around Central Illinois. Well, Paul, uh, we're a couple weeks into the season. What has caught your attention? Uh, a couple things, I guess. Uh, to start off, uh, the Cubs have been all over at least my social media, so they seem to dominate the storylines. Two Cubs-related stories that I thought were interesting. I don't know if you caught this. The New York Times reported earlier this week that uh, Cooperstown isn't all that happy with the Cubs. Really, uh, uh, Cooperstown is still waiting on the Cubs to to donate a couple of items from the World Series when the Royals like they haven't donated anything. Right, um, mm. MLB has. Uh, given a couple of things, but so far the team has been unresponsive. Uh, the Hall of Fame came out and uh, said earlier this week, and I quote, a request made to the Cubs for a loan of several player artifacts at the conclusion of the World Series has have yet gone unfulfilled. Hmm. The story goes on to say, it's by Tyler Kepner, um, it's one of my favorite baseball writers. The story goes on to say that Ben Zobrist uh, offered to d- donate his bat, but that the Hall of Fame turned him down, which was um, interesting, confusing. So, uh, that was, that article came out two days ago and I haven't seen anything since then. So just kind of an interesting storyline when the Royals won, um, they two days later donated their, um, memorabilia. So yeah, it's weird. Kind of puzzling. It's weird that the hall of fame would come out kind of as like a PR thing and Mm -hmm. makes me think that they've probably asked for months now. Right. The second thing, uh, so the Cubs rings, were all the talk um you know there's a billy goat emblem on there all these diamonds they're massive uh but did you know that they've made fan rings uh for a price of over ten thousand dollars wow and it just got me thinking about what well like what's the lowest price that would take me for me to consider buying them of my favorite team and i don't think there's a price under because if it's less than ten dollars it's so cheap it doesn't really matter anything more than ten dollars uh, i think like a 15 dollar ring is still pretty cheap too that's true yeah i'm not a huge ring person uh right. and i'm you know like it's cool to have the um you know raising the flag like they did this past week but even that i wasn't like all that into like hmm. i i know they won the world series and it's like cool to celebrate that but um like i'm kind of done with i'm ready to just move on to 2017 um and i think it's probably affecting their play like on the field i think they're Kind of emotionally drained. Hmm. Yeah, the coolest moment I think so far was when the team walked out from you know under the center field bleachers with Rizzo had the trophy over his head. As a non-Cubs fan, at least that was that seemed like the coolest moment. Yeah. All right. Uh, other non-Cubs things. I didn't even have any Cubs things written down. Wow. Uh, so a few players that have caught my eye. Biggest one is Eric Thames. Um, so he's a 30-year-old first baseman for the Brewers. He. Uh, before this year, hadn't played in the majors since 2012, but signed a three-year, $16 million contract with the Brewers in the offseason. Uh, the last few years, he's played in Korea. And Korea, their their seasons are shorter, but in those three seasons over there, he had 124 home runs, a 451 on base percentage, and a 721 slugging percentage. Uh, he even stole 40 bases in 2015. Uh, so just dominated over there. Was Barry Bonds light in Korea. Uh, and the Brewers took a chance on him, thinking that it might translate over, and so far it has. Going into Sunday, 
had a 382 average, 462 on base, and a 912 slugging. That slugging was tops in baseball. And then he homered already today. Mm-hmm. So that makes uh, four straight um, games with a home run, five home runs in four days. He's, yeah, just someone I'm, I'm following closely this year. Yeah, as you say that, I'm wondering if he's already been picked up in our fantasy league. I um, assume he has. Uh, yeah, I'm almost sure that he has. I think he got drafted. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, uh, on the pitching side of things, Chris Sale, uh, three starts for the Red Sox, 22 innings, 29 strikeouts, and a .74 whip. He has been very good. Uh, maybe a little painful for you, Paul? Painful. Uh, it's been interesting. He's kind of reverted back to uh, Chris Sale of like the early 2010s. Last because, year, because last year he, he stopped throwing as hard, right? Stopped throwing as hard and was pitching more to contact. He wanted less strikeouts so he could pitch longer in games. And it seems like he's just like rearing back and throwing as hard as he can now and going for the, the strikeout as opposed to pitching to contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of Red Sox fans are comparing him to Pedro in 1998. Uh, so that was Pedro's first season with the Red Sox after uh, pitching with the, uh, the Expos. In his first three starts, he threw 23 innings with 32 strikeouts and a .82 whip. It's very similar to Sale. Pedro is 26 and uh, Sale is 28, so a little older for, for Sale. But he's keeping the Red Sox alive despite mm-hmm. um, all their players getting sick with, yeah. the, with the flu. Yeah, a couple other pleasant surprises uh, team-wise. The Twins, uh, Reds, and Rockies are all leading their divisions. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone predicted those teams to make the playoffs. Now the Twins uh, and the Reds, uh, just from a stat perspective, seem more sustainable. The Twins have a plus 25 run differential, best in baseball, mm-hmm. which is nuts. Like who would have predicted that? Uh, and the Reds have a plus 17, which is um, second in the National League. The Dodgers also have a plus 25. Uh, the Rockies have a minus 8 run differential. So it might not be... Yeah, uh, sustainable for them. But those run differentials can be, um, you know, a little rough to look at because, um, you know, one blow early in the season can really affect it right now. Mm-hmm. You'd say the best out of those three, the team that has the best chance to finish hmm. in the playoffs, probably the Rockies? I'll go Twins. Wow. I mean, they're plus 25. That's like Cubs level from last year. Yeah. But the Twins are... <laughs> Twins aren't that good. I know. It's nuts. Uh, and Byron Buxton, if you would have told me, oh, the Twins lead the division, plus 25 run differential, I would have said Buxton is probably great, but he's been awful. Yeah. Worst player in baseball. Um, and the Reds, uh, you know, leading the NL Central, plus 17 run differential, they are doing that without Joey Votto, who is just 8 for 45 with a 255 on base percentage wow. to start this year. He, he His approach has been much different. He's been very aggressive, um, hasn't really walked or work, work counts very much. He's finally listened to Marty Brenneman. Yeah, and Tom Brenneman. Uh, on the negative side of things with run differential, the Cardinals were at minus 16 mm-hmm. heading into Sunday. Uh, I think two and, or maybe three and seven, something like that. Uh, and the Blue Jays were negative 13. They're losing today, so they'd go to two and eight. Uh, the Jays are the oldest team in baseball. Their uh, average hitter this year is 31.4 years old. Doesn't look good for them. And the Cardinals, I think, maybe re- will uh, rebound a little bit, but a lot of heat on Mike Matheny as they uh, didn't make the playoffs last year and have started out really poorly this year. Uh, probably the most interesting uh, social media moment of the week with the Cardinals. You have outfielder Tommy Pham uh, liking a post by Fangraphs. <laughs> kind of like the uh, analytical world going mainstream. Um about Matt Adams being a poor outfielder. Tommy Pham is an outfielder for the Cardinals. Correct, yeah. Uh, fascinating. Uh, did he rescind the like? I didn't go back and... I'm not sure. Maybe that should be our strategy. Uh, just post articles when we know there's like a contentious clubhouse situation and hope that a player likes one of our posts. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Chicago baseball. White Sox started out pretty good. Plus six run differential and the Cubs are at plus nine. What, what have you made of your Sox so far? Uh, it's been a surprising start, mostly because their pitching has been really good, but their best pitcher, Jose Quintana, has been their worst pitcher. So you have guys like Derek Holland, uh, Miguel Gonzalez that are pitching well, uh, which is fine. Those are guys that you want to flip near the trade deadline too, but the hope was that you could trade Quintana for a similar package to what they got for sale. And I don't know if a few games would... would would cause teams to cool on him, but certainly 
um, certainly not good that he's not well, pitching well. We've got the World Baseball Classic effect too. Sure. Which I think is becoming more of an issue. Right. You know, you're talking like people who played there that aren't performing well. Or yeah, get injured. Yeah. The thing with Quintana is he pitched awesome in the WBC. Yeah. I think a lot of the pitchers that have gotten hurt or the players that have gotten hurt and not performed well did well in the WBC. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a weird fan experience. I I don't really want the White Sox to do well this year. I'd rather them tank and and get a good draft pick. I don't know. I guess you've been through that the last in the last five years with the Cubs. So yeah, yeah. This is like uh, 2012, 2013 Cubs mm-hmm. Cubs land. Uh, two more notes for me. Attendance so far this year, Paul. Do you have a guess on uh, if it's up or down? Mm, I will say up. It is up. It's actually up 4%, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the season, it won't be up or down more than like 1%. Uh, just one percentage point is a big shift. So to be up where we were, where baseball was last year at this time, 4% is a big deal. The uh, Orioles are up 11,000 fans per game so far. So it might be a little distorted. Um, but I don't know of any like special Orioles. I was going to ask that you dig into that at all. Things. No, I haven't. Maybe a blog post this week. And the Royals are down 7,000 fans per game. Hmm. So, you know, of course, they're, they didn't win the World Series last year. Um, but it just seems odd that so many, fa- so many ca- fans would jump off the bandwagon. You're comparing year-to-date numbers or just like this year's like average the, attendance so like far? Like the Royals' first six games, home games this year versus the first six last year. Yeah, that is interesting. And that comes from baseball reference. So if my numbers turn out to be wrong, you can blame it on them. Last thing I had, uh, David Ross update. Uh, he is still on Dancing with the Stars and uh, during the Cubs rain delay before the uh, banner-raising ceremony. All the fans watched him perform on the uh, uh, Jumbotron at, at Wrigley. Uh, everyone said it was just a, a great moment, and then he later said he can't imagine not being a Cub for life. A bit odd because he only played for the Cubs for two years. Mm-hmm. He's overhyped for sure. I don't know that I have as much hatred for it as you do. But he, he's just a real articulate, fun guy, and so I think fans just kind of latch onto that. I've been shocked just, you know, with coworkers um, that are kind of fringe Cubs fans. He is their, like, favorite Cub. That's my fear. It's like he's being hyped up, and people associate him now with the 2016 Cubs. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. nuts. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, nope, that's all I got. All right, uh, so baseball on TV this week. Uh, we look at uh, one... Uh, baseball-themed episode of a TV show, uh, keeping the Seinfeld uh, month going. Uh, This week was Season 7, Episode 5, entitled The Hot Tub. Uh, One of my favorite episodes, but not very uh, uh, critically acclaimed. I saw it was 99th on someone's Seinfeld list. Hmm. Um, The plot line is a bit scattered, but uh, I uh, I think it's really funny. So (laughs) this episode, I guess the baseball part of it, George works for the Yankees. He's the traveling secretary. Mm-hmm. And uh, early in the episode, he is telling George and Elaine and Kramer that uh, one of his keys to work success is always looking annoyed or frustrated. And then if you do that, everyone thinks that you're really busy at work. And so a couple times, uh, his boss, uh, Mr. Wilhelm, Wilhelm uh, he walks by George's office a few times and sees George really frustrated doing like a crossword puzzle or trying to get a pen to work. And so he thinks George is really, uh, you know, caught up in his work. Then the uh, uh, Astros executives come to town to discuss interleague play. Wilhelm, you know, sends George on that task to, um, you know, get him to stop stressing so much about work. So he goes to the bar. The Astros uh, team of execs are pretty crude. Mm-hmm. And so that gets George using a lot of, you know, oh, that SOB or bastard sort of uh, talk. Uh, and so the episode um, ends with George talking to the Astros guys on the plane, and they have trouble hearing him. So he's yelling, like, do you tell that SOB to... Anyway, we'll play the clip for you to end this, ep- the, this segment. But uh, uh, Steinbrenner calls George into his office, tells him to relax, and uh, that's kind of the, the baseball Mm-hmm. And for Seinfeld fans out there, this is the John Paul, John Paul marathon episode. Mm-hmm. Fairly famous for that, uh, where Elaine and uh, Jerry host a South African runner uh, sure. for the New York marathon. And uh, he, he almost sleeps through his alarm. And uh, He does sleep through it. Sleeps through it, but he still makes the race on time. Kramer's got the uh, 
the industrial hot tub. Yes, it's, it's a very good. Tub. It's a very good episode. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, so we'll end with uh, a clip from uh, season seven, episode five of Seinfeld. Uh, is that you, George? <laughs> yeah, it's me. Is this Clayton? Well, listen, you son of a bitch. You know where we are? 30,000 feet above your head, you bastard. <laughs> what are they doing letting you bastards on an airplane? Don't they know that's against FAA regulations? Hey, hey, hush up now. I can't hear him. Listen, I want you guys to send along those agreements the minute you land. Our boys can't wait to kick your butts. When's that bastard coming to Houston? Hey, Zeke wants to know when you Yankee bastards are coming to Houston. You tell that son of a bitch no Yankee is ever coming to Houston. Not as long as you bastards are running things. Hey, now, now speak up, George. I can't hear you. You tell that son of a bitch no Yankee is ever coming to Houston. Not as long as you bastards are running things. Get a hold of yourself, Mr. What's the matter with you? <laughs> Part of the box this week, I read a column by Ken Rosenthal. Uh, it was posted on Fox Sports and Sports Illustrated. Uh, the title is The African-American Talent Pool Remains a Troubling Problem for Baseball. The The first half of the article was Rosenthal kind of articulating the, the issue that Major League Baseball has of such a low percentage of African-Americans playing baseball. We've talked about it on the podcast a few times uh, all these articles get written at this time because it's april right. 15th is jackie robinson day right so i won't dwell on that too much but the you know the main facts baseball player african-american baseball players make up eight percent of the workforce it's down to six percent really mm-hmm. um and that's lower than you know, you know the population so the question is why aren't we seeing more black players play baseball it's kind of at an all-time low so those are the facts, but Rosenthal has four specific ideas for helping fix that, and I'll just run through them real quick. Um, first, an increase in college scholarships. This is one was the most intriguing to me, and I uh, hadn't heard of this before. Maybe I've just been sort of blind or naive to this, but um, currently the NCAA only allows for 11.7 scholarships per Division One school. And that's compared for to baseball. for baseball, compared to 13 for men's basketball and, and 85 for football. Uh, and the, the idea behind that is if you're a high school athlete, a really good athlete, black athlete, you're more likely to be drawn towards uh, football or basketball because you know that there are more full ride scholarships available. And if you come from the inner city or just a kind of a disadvantaged position economically, that matters quite a bit. And uh, it's interesting. MLB has had conversations with the NCAA where they say, essentially, we'll fund these. Like, if, if money's an issue, hmm. we'll pay for these. But the- That's interesting because, I mean, the reason the NCAA doesn't do it is because college baseball doesn't bring in money. Right. Like, the Illinois baseball team loses over a million dollars every year on their baseball team. Mm-hmm. So, like, the you can say, oh, f- football gets this crazy amount. It's like, well, it's because they're making a profit. Right. Still, or basketball is the same way. But yeah, knowing that MLB, they want to throw money at it, but there's rules around amateurism that the NCAA has that have thus far caused them to say no. So uh, I don't know how it would happen, but it seems like that is an important thing to increase the amount of college scholarships for baseball. Second idea Rosenthal has is adjusting the draft and the, the specifically the, the bonuses that teams can pay players. Hmm. The money that NFL and NBA teams can offer first-round draft picks uh, far exceeds what MLB teams are capped at. And again, the theory is that if you're a really good athlete, say Jameis Winston, who was a dual sports star at Florida State, baseball and football, you're going to be more drawn to the money. It's just kind of a fact. And Rosenthal's theory is that if you raise the amount of money that teams can spend, then you might see more Jameis Winston's choose baseball over football um third uh construct more urban youth academies so almost every team has some sort of academy or a a youth baseball center in a latin american country it's uh become more and more popular to have a center in the dominican or in puerto rico or in venezuela but only nine of those exist in america in the states They've proven to be successful in Latin American countries, so Rosenthal says, why not build more here in inner cities so you get more kids playing? And the last one is a shout-out to the White Sox. Uh, The specific idea is an expansion of the White Sox model, which, according to Rosenthal, is 
just teams, individual teams donating a ton of money. The White Sox last year gave almost a half a million dollars to programs in Chicago where they're providing facilities, equipment, uniforms, even assistance with strength and conditioning um, for inner city uh, black kids. For the White Sox, it's worked really well. Corey Ray, who was the fifth overall pick last year mm-hmm. by the Brewers, came out of that program. Uh, almost 150 program participants have earned college scholarships. These are all African-Americans. And uh, so Rosenthal's idea is somehow to expand that and get more teams interested in that. It is a difficult thing, right? Because the White Sox, in theory, aren't benefiting from that. You know, they're, it's not like... PR. Right. So you can see why more teams would have centers in Latin American countries because those players would be more likely to come to that team. Um, so it would just be kind of altruistic doing good playing but, pr right pr pr so i mean that's like the only reason why it's actually doing it uh yeah i guess you could say that um what so, other i mean you think ryan surf really has like a heart for inner city well they've got kenny, kenny williams is a black executive who's gone on record as saying he cares about that and sure yeah i assume the best in people Pete. <laughs> so those are the four ideas increase college scholarships adjust draft bonuses construct more youth centers and expanding the White Sox model. I think um, adjusting the draft and college scholarships were the two that jumped out to me. Interesting. All right, uh, so uh, a twist on a foot in the box this year. Uh, I'm writing a blog post every day of the 2017 season. They've been great. Up to like 13 now. Um, It's been kind of a grind, but uh, on the podcast, before I talk about an article uh, that I read, I'm going to just mention my favorite post that I wrote in the previous week. So this week, my favorite post uh, that I wrote was from Saturday. It was on Byron Buxton. And uh, through research using Play Index on Baseball Reference, I uh, discovered that of the 2,918 players that have reached 500 plate appearances in their first three MLB seasons, Byron Buxton ranks fourth worst in at-bats per strikeout. So almost 3,000 players have done what Buxton does has done uh, 500 plate appearances in his first three seasons, and Buxton is fourth worst in at-bats per strikeout. Well, He strikes out, so far in his career, once every 2.5 at-bats. Other people in the top 10 that are notable, Miguel Sano is actually second worst. Yikes. Uh, Another uh, twin-hyped prospect. Uh, Mark Reynolds is in there, and Bo Jackson also are in the top 10. I was also curious to know the um, the best, uh, you know, the opposite of this, so like the best 10 um, to ever do this. I had to narrow the search from 1980 on because uh, if I included all of baseball, it was just filled with people no one cared about from the 1800s. So the the players with the best at-bat per strikeout ratio. Uh, number three on that list since 1980 is Tony Gwynn. He struck out once every 18 at-bats in his first three years. Uh, Wade Boggs is fourth. Uh, Benji Molina is seventh. Juan Pierre eighth. Uh, Tony Fernandez ninth. Hmm. This is interesting. Go check that out. I'll link to it in the podcast episode page, or you could just go to the website <laughs> and click the uh, Peter tab. All right, for my article this week, uh, Buster only wrote an article that wasn't Insider, the rare non-only Insider. But you, but you are an Insider, right? Uh, I think I should be, but I. ESPN doesn't say that I am on their website, and I haven't put in time to actually like hmm. contact anyone. I don't get ESPN the magazine anymore, so maybe not. Oh, you stopped. Well, they've stopped coming, so I assume <laughs> assume that. Uh, so only wrote a piece uh, uh, entitled, Four-Man Outfield is Coming to a Ballpark Near You, which I feel like is the laziest headline to say, like, you know, so-and-so is coming to a court near you, <laughs> or a ballpark near you. Anyway, uh, it's not a great article. Uh, it's an interesting concept that I wanted to talk about, but it's uh, just kind of a pretty lazy piece, no real stats behind it. So he talks to some evaluators, scouts uh, in the baseball industry, and they have just talked more and more about uh, the possibility of a four-man outfield, slow-pitch softball-esque, only uh, you'd have to take one of your infielders and move them out to the mm-hmm. outfield. Uh, so this idea comes because more and more hitters are being coached to hit the ball in the air in recent years as more stats back up the theory that you should try to hit you know fly balls to get home runs rather than line drives 
and uh, evaluators think that we could see this forming outfield uh, in certain situations. So, for instance, with two outs and nobody on, uh, it's a good time to do it because you know you're not going to try to uh, get a single or a bunt. A slugger is not going to want to do that because hmm. they just want to try to hit a home run with two outs and nobody on. Uh, your personnel also matters. So, like for the Cubs, they have a better chance of doing it because they could move Bryant or Zobrist if they're in the infield to the outfield mm -hmm. uh, because they've played both the infield and the outfield before. Uh, you also get in a batter's head. Joe Ben speaking to that, that when you shift or do things like that, the hitter starts to think, and then that's good for the mm -hmm. pitcher. Um, my thought, though, as I was reading this is, aren't we kind of already seeing this? Yeah, like, that was going to be my first thought. You know, you shift a guy to short right field, he's essentially an outfielder. Mm -hmm. I guess this would be just pushing that guy even farther back. Yeah, I guess the distinction would be this guy wouldn't be able to throw out a guy at first base. Huh. What would be interesting, too, a lot of those uh, sluggers who you would do this on, I would imagine, are like pull happy. So mm -hmm. you could have like three outfielders you know, on the right side of the field, sure. which would look so funny. I do think it's interesting. We, we ran into this in slow pitch where when you do that and guys change their approach, and even if they beat you, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? So if you get like, I don't know, Anthony Rizzo, to change his approach and try to hit a line drive to left field and he gets a single with two outs and nobody on. That's, that's a win, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I agree with you. Interesting concept. Uh, and it would be kind of a fun thing to see. Yeah. You're thinking like teams down one, Bob of the ninth, like a David Ortiz type slugger comes up with nobody on, like he's going to try to hit home run to tie it. Uh, so that's a scenario where you might consider mm -hmm. the forming outfield. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, uh, heavy built infielders that would look really funny in the outfield. Dan Uglo is the first that came to mind. Yeah, well, I mean, like Matt Adams plays the outfield. That's though, true. So I feel like it's Schwarber shouldn't play the outfield, but he does. Yeah, the Cubs would be ideal because Bryant was an outfielder. Baez is probably one of the most athletic players in baseball. Zobrist. Yeah, Zobrist. Yep. All right. Well, uh, that does it for Out of the Box. Next up, TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they can put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is. Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. As I mentioned for TWTW this week, we are taking a question from a listener, Matt from Minnesota, writes in. He says, the Cubs radio team just discussed how teams often have a scoring drought the game after a big game, 10 plus runs or more. Uh, that seems like something I've heard a lot, but I don't believe. Can I get a fact check? And if, if other people have questions, can they ask them? They can. You can email us at afootinthebox at gmail.com. We'd be happy to take uh, some listener questions. Uh, but I fact-checked that, and Matt is right. Uh, the, the Cubs in 2016, well, I guess combined 2015-2016, last two seasons, they've scored 10 or more runs 15 times. Can you guess, out of those 15 times, how many times they have scored more than their average? After that? Right, the game after. Uh, pretty small sample size here. Uh, seven. Uh, that's exactly correct. And eight times they've scored less. Um, so with the Cubs, that's been wrong. Um, however, uh, through the the first eleven games of this season, teams have scored ten or more runs nineteen times, and uh, the results are a bit more inconclusive. Six times teams have scored more than the league average the next game. Thirteen times they've scored below it. If you compare just the averages, uh, the league average scoring average this year is 4.4 runs per game. The average of those teams in the game after, when they're scoring 10 or more runs, is 3.2. So mm. you, the average is a full run uh, lower. I think this research is your key to a baseball job <laughs> have you emailed this to yeah not, so, not something i'd like to hold up on a sort of resume um but i think uh what you're seeing here is that the statement uh is wrong oh certainly it's not backed up by i mean when uh pat hughes or whoever says this it's they have no idea if it's true or not mm -hmm. yeah this felt like a very hawk harrelson well the whole like adage of like save some for tomorrow like 
if you're a fan and you watch, uh, you know, your team score like 10 runs one day and then like zero the next, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, like why can we save some? So it, it feels like that, but I think it's not probably true. Yep, has not been true for the Cubs so far this year. Meh, it's been sort of true, uh, but obviously quite a bit more research to do on this one before you make any uh, full-fledged determination. All right, uh, well, that was TWTW. Next up, sounds of the game. Sacks waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. was Vin Scully uh, with our intro there. As we announced a couple weeks ago, he will be uh, introing every sounds of the game because we love him and miss him on this podcast. Uh, so my sounds of the game comes from the 2007 playoffs, the 2007 uh, uh, wild card uh, playoff game. Uh, it, the Rockies and Padres had to play a one-game playoff to get into the playoffs. The, the one-game wild card playoff was not around back then. Hopefully this isn't too confusing. But uh, <laughs> Padres and Rockies had the same record, so they played each other one game playoff to see who would go on to the division series. The Rockies won that game in dramatic fashion. They were down eight to six going into the bottom of the thirteenth inning. Padres had hit a two run homer in the top of that inning. Uh, so Trevor Hoffman, you know, famous Hall of Fame closer. Seen the Hall of Fame yet? Uh, he's not, no. Okay. Maybe someday Hall of Fame. He was on my, he was on my ballot last year. Not mine. Uh, famous, uh, closer comes in to shut the door in the bottom of the 13th. The Rockies, uh, do the following. Kaz Matsui doubles to center field. Troy Chilowitzki doubles to center field. Matt Holliday triples to right field. Uh, Todd Helton is intentionally walked. And Jeremy Carroll hits a fly ball to right field. Brian Giles and that leads to uh, the call that we're going to listen to from the TBS TV crew. Uh, Holiday uh, is called safe at home plate, but of course uh, he did not actually touch the plate, but replay was not around back then. Mm. Uh, Michael Barrett blocks the plate. So there were no outs. That was I didn't realize that. That's a, a gutsy send. Yeah. That's a gutsy send. It was, it was a fly ball, though. If you watched it, Giles, I don't think, has a super strong arm, if I remember correctly. You would definitely send him. Hmm. Like it seemed odd that it was so close at home. But, uh, the Rockies' playoff history, they made the playoffs their third year in, uh, as a team, 1995, and then they also made it in 2009. But 2007 is the only time they won a series. They actually made it all the way to the World Series. They swept the Division Series and NLCS. They went 8-0 to start the playoffs, and then they got swept by the Red Sox. Hmm. Uh, so it's funny how that worked. But here, uh, here's that call. Jamie Carroll, the batter, to right field. Giles is there to make the catch, tagging his holiday. The throw to the plate, he is safe. The Colorado Rockies are the National League wild card winners. Okay, so before uh, we get to our interview with a Rockies writer for the Denver Post. Uh, we're going to do a little deep dive with Michael Jordan's uh, baseball career. Uh, shout out to uh, Rob Nyer and Effectively Wild that uh, kind of put this on my radar at least. They did uh, an episode and Rob Nyer wrote uh, an article from March about Jordan's baseball career. I've always found it pretty fascinating and so I just wanted to to look into it for a few minutes here. Yeah, I would highly encourage you, uh, Nyer wrote, that was actually an oral history so he went back and did the research and pulled quite a few quotes, and it was it's fascinating, and yeah. it's it's not a obscenely long oral history. Either. Yeah, we'll link to it in the uh, podcast page. All right, so I think we'll just do this chronologically and uh, intermix some sound bites as we go. Uh, so Jordan's obviously a great basketball player, and he had just finished the season in which the Bulls won their third straight title mm-hmm. in 1993. 
on uh, October 6th of 93, just before the 93 season started, uh, he announces his retirement from basketball. Uh, that was two months after his dad was murdered, and uh, most people did not think that the retirement would last at all. No one thought that he was done. It'd sort of be like uh, well, LeBron or like a Russell Westbrook retiring after this season, which is hard to fathom. Living the American dream. The American dream is to reach a point in your life where you don't have to do anything you want to do, you don't want to do, and everything that you do want to do. So we respect the decision. We're sorry to leave him, to see Michael leave, but it's really been an honor and a pleasure for me and for the people of Chicago to have had Michael here for nine years. I can only imagine what it was like seeing Babe Ruth because I think this man, I used to say, was the Babe Ruth of basketball. I've now come to believe that Babe Ruth was the Michael Jordan of baseball. Michael? Thanks, Jerry. I think uh, everyone knows exactly what the circumstances are right now in terms of uh, my decision not to play the game of basketball uh, in the NBA. Doesn't mean I'm not going to play basketball somewhere else, but uh, I've talked to all my confidence, uh, my family, my friends, as uh, Jerry has just uh, informed you, uh, to the organization. Uh, I even talked to David uh, Stern as of yesterday and even today, and uh, I'm very solid with my decision of not to uh, play the, the game of basketball uh, in the NBA. Reason being, I've heard a lot of different speculations about my reasons for not playing, but I've always stressed to people that have known me and the media that has followed me that when I lose uh, the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, uh, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. So at, at that point, uh, people didn't really know baseball was on the radar. Because it's, it, yeah, it's not mentioned in the press conference at all. Well, except the Babe Ruth. Oh, yeah. Line that we just mentioned. That, and that was a, a Yahoo answer we did last year. Is, is Michael Jordan the Babe Ruth That's right. of basketball or is Babe Ruth the Michael Jordan of baseball? That's right. Something to think about at work this week. All right, but that that winter, uh, you know, after he retired from basketball, he works out with White Sox trainer Herm Schneider, who I believe is still there, right? Still there. Now Schneider is a uh, portly fellow, right? He's very well regarded in the industry, but yeah, he is. Uh, he does not look like he's in shape, which is ironic for a trainer. Mm-hmm, definitely. All right, uh, so February of '94, Jordan announces he's going to play baseball. Sends uh, shockwaves, you know, through the sporting landscape. In the 1994 spring training, mixed reviews. Uh, he went seven for 46, uh, and I was curious to know how that compared to Tebow. Paul, very, very similar. Paul has those numbers for us. In spring training this year, Tebow went uh, four for 27. So Tebow would be slightly worse. No homers, one walk. Jordan was eight for seven for 46. Seven for 46. Uh, both pretty terrible. <laughs> yep. Uh, Sports Illustrated famously put Jordan on the cover. Uh, in March of 94. Bag it, Mike. Yep, bag it, Michael. Uh, and then the tagline, Jordan and the White Sox are embarrassing baseball. Jordan has not spoken with Sports Illustrated since then. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's crazy. Even they've done like editions uh, dedicated to Jordan for his 50th birthday and when they Bulls won titles. Yeah. Seems like they shouldn't have done that, right? Yeah, I mean, the the byline is ridiculous. I don't think it's an embarrassment on baseball. Yeah, if a team wants to sign him, like, right? I, I don't know. So Jordan's baseball history, he quit baseball two games into his senior year of high school and hadn't played since. So he'd taken 13 years off, which I believe is a few years longer than actually what Tebow, mm-hmm. Tebow did. But what's interesting about Jordan, and maybe you were going to get to this, he was actually a very good baseball player like as a youth. I don't know how... Important this award is, but he was voted or named Mr. Baseball uh, by the Dixie Youth Association. Uh, so he, he was a, a stellar baseball player what, as what, a kid. At what level? Uh, I believe that was like li- the equivalent of Little League. Okay. Um, yeah, so he's in spring training. He works ridiculously hard. Uh, people said his hands were so raw from taking um, batting cage uh, drills that the calluses would rip open every day and they have to use gauze to cover them. Uh, so he'd spend hours in the cages every day in spring training was, was committed to getting, uh, getting his swing down. Here is a, a sports center clip, um, from spring training. 
And uh, Ted Williams chimes in on, on Jordan's hitting. Since his arrival here last Wednesday, Jordan has worked on his fielding on grass as well as running the bases. He won't face live pitching from the White Sox staff until next week, but during the two hours of work, he sprayed the ball all over the field, making decent contact, and had his first contact with the White Sox noted hitting instructor, Walt Riniak. But not everyone has been so enamored with Jordan's progress. He's stopping when he hits the ball, looking out that way, instead of really carrying through. He being a right-hand hitter, his right shoulder should be pointing towards second. Now, next time you watch him hit, his right shoulder stops at first base. There's no follow-through. And if you don't follow through, you're not getting as much power as you should on the ball. My biggest improvement that I have to improve on is to, um, uh, keeping my butt in, you know, standing more firmly on my toes at the, in the batter's box. And uh, Walt was really working with me today about keeping my head down on the ball. Jordan said naturally. In his heart, he believes he'll be with the White Sox opening day. But the burning question remains, if he starts out in the minors, how will traveling by bus suit his airness? I'm not too adjusted to royalty that I can't ride a bus. You know, I mean, uh, I don't have a problem with it, as long as it's a luxury bus. <laughs> but uh, I'm a part of a team. And, and once I'm a part of the team, I like to do everything the team does. And uh, I don't want to isolate or uh, alienate myself from the team. But the mere mention of Jordan's name to star pitcher Alex Fernandez seemed to ruffle a few feathers. I just tell you, I'm not going to talk about it. Hopefully the players, uh, if they ever can see me and, and work with me, that they can understand that I'm putting the effort out there. And that's all you can respect me for. I'm not asking for a shortcut. I'm not asking to make more money than anybody else in the league. Pitchers and catchers report on Wednesday, and it remains to be seen if Jordan will win over his new teammates. He has not endeared himself to the local fans after speeding off from the White Sox complex for the second straight day. In Sarasota, I'm Andrea Kramer, ESPN. Uh, so his manager at AA was Terry Francona, uh, mm -hmm. another interesting nugget from all of this. Uh, now the manager of the Indians, of course. Uh, Another interesting thing from the Nyers article, the, the uh, Birmingham Barons owner talked about when uh, when Jordan was assigned to AA out of spring training, they weren't sure how ticket sales would go. Like they were obviously excited to get him uh, because attendance was going to go up, but they just weren't sure the effect it would have. He said he was at an 8 a.m. meeting the day after they announced it, and uh, people started to come in. The ticket office wasn't even open yet, but uh, car started to line up, on, and they said it was like the Field of Dreams right. uh, car line. Yeah, he said within five minutes of the announcement, there was uh, a string of cars that had lined up. Mm -hmm. Is that still a White Sox affiliate? Yep, still their double-A team. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Barons, uh scene from Space Jam includes them in it when he's playing minor league baseball, because hmm. it came out in 95. Stan Podlack, uh, played by uh, Newman from Seinfeld, talks to him in the dugout there. Oh, hi, hey, hey, Mr. Jordan. Uh, Mr. Jordan, I I'm Stan. You alright? Oh, that was a nasty fall. <laughs> oh, I I'm Stan Podolak. Mr. Jordan, I'm, I'm the Baron's new publicist. <laughs> I'm here to make your life easier. You want me to drive you somewhere? I will drive you anywhere. You want me to pick up your laundry, to babysit your kids? I will too. Uh, and you know what's interesting about the beginning of Jordan's actual season, so beyond spring training, is that he started off fairly well. I think he was 0 for his first seven, but after that, he had a 13-game hitting streak, batted over 300, and it looked like he was going to have a pretty seamless transition. But then um, he tanked. Yeah, then he tanked, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I don't know what really explains that, whether it's you know, opposing pitchers, I, figuring him out, I, I would imagine scouting wasn't that big of a deal back then. But, mm -hmm. of course, with Jordan, you know, he's going to get pitchers' best stuff every time and they're 100% um, focus. Mm -hmm. And pitchers did see it as like a lose-lose thing. Like, you're supposed to get him out because he hasn't played baseball. Mm -hmm. But if he gets a hit off you, like, <laughs> you know, it's embarrassing. Right. So his first home run, it came in his 101st game. It was actually on his dad's birthday in front of a, a record crowd uh, at the Barons. Yeah, uh, pretty cool park. moment. Mm -hmm. uh, not much power from Jordan. The 94 season t in total, he played 127 games. He hit just uh, 202 with a 289 on base percentage. He actually walked quite a bit. 
So that makes me think a little more optimistically about his future if he mm-hmm. continued to play because I think one of the hardest things in baseball, maybe the hardest as a hitter, is just recognizing whether you should swing or not. And it seemed like he was able to do that. Mm-hmm. Like he walked uh, 51 times in uh, uh, 497 plate appearances. The difference between ba- uh, his betting average and on base is, is high. Uh, so 202 average, 289 on base, and then a 266 slugging, which is you know, makes me pessimistic about his chances just because he, he did not uh, drive the ball. Yeah, Francona has gone on record as saying for the 30 for 30 that was done by ESPN and other places that if Jordan had stuck with it and if he had gotten, you know, a thousand at-bats in the minors that he thinks he could have made it to the majors, not as a, like a regular, but he could have carved out a role at the major league level. So people say his his biggest strength was his speed, but he was 30 for 48 in steals. He got thrown out a ton trying mm-hmm. to steal bases. So I'm, and he was he was in his thirties. So I don't think I mean he was nowhere near good enough to be like a pinch runner. Right. Yeah. I think maybe Francona's thinking like well, and, fourth outfielder. Maybe. Well, and back then maybe like oh he got thirty steals. He's fast. That right. sort of thing. They didn't look at cost cost stealing. I think Jordan's best baseball moment came uh, at the end of spring training in '94. The White Sox actually played the Cubs at a spring training game in Wrigley. And uh, Jordan had a couple hits and then doubled down the left field line. He's handled a couple of chances well. He made an there on a ground ball. Got a base hit to drove in a run. There's another hit. A drive down the third base line. The tying run may score. He's around third. Racing for the plate. The throw. He hasn't touched the plate yet, and he does. Michael Jordan is tied up. The ball game with a ground double to left. And this crowd has seen what it came here for. And everybody's on their feet yelling. All right, Paul. So uh, Jordan ends his baseball career in March of 95. The strike is is going on in baseball, and that's another thing that kind of complicates the whole thing. Jordan doesn't want to get caught up in that, uh, doesn't want to be a replacement player. Um, so he... Quits baseball, goes back to basketball just in time for the playoff run from the Bulls, who were actually right around 500 that year. Yeah, and uh, Reinsdorf, the both the Bulls and White Sox owner, said has gone on record as saying that uh, Jordan definitely. You always say someone goes on record as saying. Sorry, definitely would have returned for another season of baseball if not for the strike. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if Jordan would agree with that, but that's at least Reinsdorf's take. The Bulls do not make the finals that year. Jordan only shot 40%, which was by far his lowest of his career that season. So he was pretty rusty. Uh, still was very good in the playoffs, but um, was not his normal self. And then uh, three years after that, they win the title back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. Mm-hmm. So just a once-in-a-lifetime player. If, you, if you're bored, you should go to his basketball reference page and look at his numbers that he put up. Yeah, Just insanely good. Even though the the 95 season wasn't was probably his worst, he still, you know, less than a month after playing baseball, scored 55 points against the Magic. Mm-hmm. So still, he could have outbursts. That was like the old Michael. Final question, Paul. Why did Jordan quit basketball to play baseball? Uh, I I tend to believe Jordan when he says that like his father passing had just left him feeling unmotivated and, and wanting a different challenge. Mm-hmm. Do you, you, buy, you, do you, buy- do, you buy the Bill Simmons uh, gambling ban i don't buy it uh if you look at uh jordan's just the minutes he logged in early on in his career he played on the dream team in 92 and then he had he retired after the first time he retired it was after a stretch of seven straight seasons of full-on regular seasons so 80 plus games every year 40 minutes a game uh and then six straight double digit playoff appearances double digit game playoff appearances so I think he was just drained, kind of like LeBron now. And LeBron was it last year? He midseason just went to uh, Miami for like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, for a break. I think it manifests in LeBron and him just being constantly like a complainer and like annoyed with the media. And um, and you can understand why. I mean, he just played so much. Uh, where for Jordan, I think it was just him <laughs> trying baseball for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, if you have theories of your own, feel free to send them in to us. But I uh, hope you enjoy that. Um, we'll end this clip with, I think, the only time Jordan has appeared in in a baseball setting since 
95. Uh, he threw out the first pitch at the Cubs one-game wildcard playoff in 1998. Wrigley Field, Chicago. And as we told you, the place has been rocking already. And here comes the great Chicago hero who's won many a championship and big game, Michael Jordan, to throw out the ceremonial first ball. So they are trying to get all of the... <laughs> the good karma they can get Joe here from the get-go. Well, John, no wonder I couldn't get him on the phone. I've been trying to reach him. He's here at the stadium. And he's got a Sammy Sosa jersey on. <laughs> Sammy Sosa, the catcher. Michael and Sosa. Two of the biggest sports icons, not just in Chicago, but in the, the country and the world right now. And as has been customary in every game Sosa plays, as well as Mark McGuire, the flashbulbs go off. So they have evoked the spirit of Michael Jordan, who I guess is the definition of the big game player. And the Cubs are looking for a few big game players for this one tonight. This week's guest on the podcast is Kyle Newman. He is an editor for the Denver Post. Listeners, you can follow him on Twitter at Kyle Newman DP. Uh, Kyle, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So you wrote a, a feature uh, piece for the Denver Post on a beer vendor at Coors Field that goes by the name of Earthman. Uh, his real name is Brent uh, Doden. And it's a really fascinating story. Last August, he was diagnosed with uh, inoperable brain tumors. Doctors gave him uh, six to 18 months to live, and your piece focused on his experience attending his last home opener for the, the Rockies at Coors, I guess, a week ago, Friday. Uh, this time he was just going as a fan um, because of the tumors. So uh, give us some background on uh, this beer vendor. Why is he so uh, beloved by Rockies fans? Yeah, so Captain Earthman, as he's known to fans, <laughs> has been working Rockies games since the team came to Colorado, uh, first starting at Mile High Stadium, then when they moved over to Coors Field. And really, I mean, he's become as iconic uh, as the stadium itself, as the, the waterfalls beyond the center field wall. I mean, he is really a part of the Coors Field culture. And, I mean, I'm 26 years old, almost 27, and, and I grew up with him in the stands, selling my dad's beers, and then, hmm. you know, eventually selling me beers. And uh, just he's, he's carved out kind of a niche for himself, Um among the vendors because of his wacky hat and uh, his, his like catchphrases, like no sissy sipping. So really like, you know, taking that, that entertainment factor, that customer customer service factor to a whole nother level for vendors. And, uh, you know, pioneer of his craft too. It's like in the early two thousands, I talked about this in the article that he started bringing a cell phone to work and passing out business cards with his numbers on it, with his number on it. So, you know, when he was a couple sections over, you could just pop out your cell phone if you had one at that time. And it was still pretty early in the cell phone age, but you could call him or text him and he'd come over and sell you a beer. So really just kind of impacting fans uh, in, in a transcendental way, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would encourage listeners to go read it. We'll link to it on the uh, podcast episode page. Uh, but it's a great, great article. And like you said, he, he started vending, uh, you know, in the early 90s when the Rockies first started. Um, and has been doing it for, you know, decade and a half now. So obviously, or longer than that, I guess 20, 20 some years, uh, obviously uh, he loves the job. And it seemed like from your piece, he loved interacting with the fans just as much as fans loved interacting with him. Would you say that's accurate? I would definitely say that. And um, in his last home opener, you know, last week, he's, he's kind of not all there right now. I mean, he's, it's, it's very hard for him to have conversations and, like he knew why why Coors Field was special, and he knew he had worked there, but he couldn't really remember particular people or or fans or coworkers, uh, former coworkers, I should say. But I mean, it's really quite special to watch that his walk into the stadium. He got there probably about an hour and a half early. He walked in, and I mean, every ten feet being recognized by Coors Field employees, by other fans, uh, he really has you know made an impact just on the people who come to these games and, you know, people like myself, even beyond my reporter role, uh, lifetime fans who kind of always will associate Captain, Captain Earthman with Ford Field. It's been uh, a little over a week since the article came out. Is there a, a particular aspect of the story that still resonates with you or that, that folks have, 
you know, or readers have, have said resonated with them the most? You know, I just think kind of his, his levity throughout the whole situation. Uh, if you saw him at the ballpark on opening day, he was still drinking a beer. He was still really soaking it in. And like I said, he's aware that he hasn't, he doesn't have much time left, but hmm. he's intent on making the most of it. Uh, he's done a lot of traveling. He's gone to concerts. He's like an avid music collector with a huge record collection at his house. So really making the most of it and, and talking with him and his wife, uh, they definitely plan to try and be back to course Field as much as his health will allow this season. Hmm. Uh, as as uh, uh, the writer of the article, I'm curious to know what um, your role was. Did you think of the idea? You, you mentioned kind of knowing him growing up, but um, was this like a sign to you? Uh, how, was, how did that go down? Yeah, so I caught wind um, that he was going to be at opening day, and that was just uh, through social media and seeing some posts from his wife um, that they were going to go to opening day. So I reached out to her and kind of, you know, did some preliminary reporting, talked to her, talked to uh, one of his, like, vendor mentors that he uh, knew in the early 80s and throughout the 90s. It really just kind of got a sense of this guy because I knew him, like I said, as a fan for a long time, but really getting to know how he pioneered kind of the craft, like I said, at Coors Field and how he became, you know, just as entertaining as the game itself. So, yeah, and then I set something up, you know, to to walk in with him at, at the field and spend some time at the ball game with him, which really was awesome and gave me great insight to be able to write the piece and, and just kind of capture the spirit of the thing, as I like to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool backstory. Uh, as we record this, the Rockies are uh, leading the NL West. Uh, that'd be kind of a cool way for uh, Earthman to to go out to, with his Rockies, you know, possibly winning the division. Um, are fans pretty excited in Denver for the team this year? Yeah, and I mean, with how the bullpen and the starting pitching has looked so far, obviously Gray going to the DL hurts a little bit, but the bats have been a little slow in, in spots. I'm sure they'll heat up. I mean, we've got one of the best lineups you know, in the whole league. So, yeah, fans are, are super excited. And that was another interesting thing, too. One of the readers commented, I think it was on Facebook, after we shared the link that, hey, like the Rockies should dedicate this season to Earth, man, do something for them. And that would be cool. I don't think that's going to happen. But, I mean, the best dedication they can give him is to, you know, make a playoff run. And, and that'll that'll be a good something for the fans, too, because, you know, it's it's a lot's been said about the Monforts and how they know that they can basically play 500 baseball and still pack the stadium, make money. But I think, you know, they made a good faith effort this offseason to bolster their pitching, those weak spots, and hopefully it pays off for for fans and Earthman this year. That would be cool. Uh, lastly, uh, just from following you on Twitter, it looks like a large part of your role at the paper is covering high school sports, and that includes uh, high school baseball right now. Uh, what yep. is what? What's that like? Do you enjoy uh, high school baseball, or is it kind of a stepping stone for something else? You know, I, I really do. Uh, obviously, I, I cover a little bit of college and pro too, so um, I kind of just go wherever the story takes me. But yeah, a lot of my coverage is focused on the prep level, which I love. I love being a part of that kind of grassroots coverage, and uh, they appreciate it, you know. And uh, yeah, it's 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 awesome, but. High school baseball around here, there's, there's a lot of good players. It's, it's pretty good comparative, I think, nationally. And you're seeing some guys, um, like on the national stage, really putting on for Colorado, uh, like David Peterson and Michael Bard. Peterson goes to Oregon. Michael Bard goes to Southern Illinois. And they're two of the best uh, starting pitchers in the nation right now. And I just did a, a feature on them. So it's, it's cool to not only cover these high schools around here, but also continue to cover them as they go on to the pros or to the college and then some of them to the pros. That's awesome. Well, I uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to join us. Uh, listeners, again, uh, Kyle Newman works for the Denver Post. Follow him on Twitter at Kyle Newman DP and make sure to check out uh, the article that we'll link to. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much, and we'll be uh, reading your work this year. Hey, guys, thanks a lot for having me on. If I could be like I- Thanks again to Kyle for joining us. Uh, If you have not read that article, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Again, you can find that on our podcast page, uh, episode page at afootinthebox.com. All right, Uh, so closing out the podcast here, one update I have. uh, If you played the over-under game, which many of you did, 
Uh, you can check our website earlier this week for an update on that. You'll get to see where you stand so far uh, in the season. So go to afootinbox.com and click on the, uh, the tab for that. And while you're there, you can read uh, Peter's uh, daily feature. And, and, my, and your daily feature. And my daily feature as well. We've heard from quite a few of you that have been enjoying those. Appreciate the feedback and uh, keep reading. Absolutely. Yeah, if you have ideas for uh, for my daily posts, feel free to... What was our over-under? May 15th for you? Uh, something like that. May 20th, maybe. All right. Uh, so last year in this segment, we would do uh, some uh, silly things like uh, a Yahoo Answer of the Week. And uh, Paul had some weird baseball name. And we did a competition where we had to pick a team uh, for the following week. And their record that week was our record for that week. This year, though, we're simplifying it. We're just doing one thing. We're taking the time that we normally would do those things, and we're playing a baseball video game, the best uh, baseball video game of all time, according to an ESPN ranking, uh, 2005 MVP Baseball on PS2. So I've purchased the game, and uh, the loser of our season-long video game battle gets to pick a baseball-themed bumper sticker to put on the other person's car. Uh, So... uh, a couple episodes ago, I, I listed my favorites. I think right now I'd go with uh, Honk if you're headed to baseball practice, <laughs> uh, if I won that battle. Uh, so we'll play our first game after this week's uh, episode. And uh, if you're curious to follow along, to end each podcast, we'll kind of list what happened the previous week's game briefly. But we'll also uh, periscope the final uh, half inning of, uh, of that. So check that out. Riveting stuff. Uh, on our Twitter page, if you're, uh, if you want to know uh, who's winning those games, I'm going to be the Cubs every week. Paul's going to be the White Sox. Teams are pretty even on uh, the the 05 MVP baseball. Mm-hmm. Let's see, 2005 would be uh, like Burley versus well, two, the, Pryor. Remember, they always would do the year ahead, so it's actually 2004 season. Right. So like Burley so, Burley Pryor, uh, or Wood maybe. Yeah, that's right. I guess we'll find no, out. Pryor Pryor after yeah. the 2003 season. Right, maybe coming off like a Cy Young. He was third in Cy Young in 2003. All right, uh, well, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a review there if you listen. Uh, Find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. If those are your things, like Paul mentioned earlier, you can send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. And check us out online at afootinthebox.com. I uh, think that does it. We'll be back next week with a normal episode. Uh, Paul, do you have anything else? Just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I move. I dream I groove. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Oh, if I could be like Mike. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Yeah, I try Just need to fly